Welcome everyone to the Breathe Better podcast. I'm your host, Sienna Smith, and I am thrilled and honored to welcome a very special guest to the show. He's one of the world's leading experts on breathing, Mr. Patrick McEwen. He's the author of the best-selling book, The Oxygen Advantage, and his recent book, The Breathing Cure, is a wealth of resources. He's the founder and director of training and education at the Buteco Clinic International. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of Biology. He has a wonderful professional certificate program in the Buteco method, which I'm personally enrolled in. And his website is butecoclinic.com, which has some wonderful resources. And it's such a good service to the public. So thank you so much for being here and spreading the good word on breathing. It's a pleasure, Sienna. It's great to be here. I want to start by highlighting that you have been researching and teaching about the breath for over 20 years. And yet just in the last three years, it seemed to really caught on, maybe mostly due to COVID. And in this show, I would first like to discuss some of the most common breathing issues that many adults face, and also hear some of your recommendations for breathing techniques to address those issues. Second, since I'm a certified yoga therapist and teacher trainer, I'd really like to touch on yoga and breathing. I know when I started yoga, there were some things I was doing incorrectly, or maybe that weren't that great for my physiology. So I'd like to touch on that towards the end of the show. Let's start with your book, The Breathing Cure. It is a meaty book and has so much great information. It also includes 26 breathing exercises. So in the book, you say, breathing impacts every aspect of health, sleep, digestion, movement, mental well-being, disease, recovery, and it is an extraordinary resource with life-changing potential. Can you speak to a few of those health issues and how breathing can help? I think the power of the breath has been underestimated. And I think that it's, it has an enormous potential you know, that we can, and I'm not going to say that breathing is a cure-all, it's not, um, but some of the major issues that are going on. So for example, sleep disorder breathing is absolutely impacted by how you breathe during wakefulness. And researchers are finding that out in the last seven years. Anxiety, panic disorder, depression even, is impacted by how we breathe. And there's a growing research over the last 30 years looking at heart rate variability. So people who are physically or emotionally unwell, they typically have a reduced heart rate variability and it can imply that they're in an increased sympathetic state. And then if we look at people say with diabetes, they're also in an increased sympathetic drive. People with epilepsy, both groups also can have poor lung function. Both groups can also be prone to sleep disorder breathing. Um, I know, you know, it's, it's, I'd see an enormous potential happening over the years. And especially when you touched on yoga, can you, can you imagine a yoga instructor that when a student comes in through their door, the yoga instructor is able to help that person, regardless of the condition coming in, in terms of if they have asthma, the yoga instructor is positioned to be able to teach this person, how do you breathe to help open up the airways? Another person is coming up with panic disorder. The yoga instructor is able to tailor breathing exercises to suit that individual, giving them a good, you know, a dose and duration of air hunger that's suitable for them, 
but explaining physiology. Somebody else is coming in highly stressed, how to teach them to downregulate. Somebody who's doing yoga for physical performance, how to bring breathing exercise in there. And it will really open the door and it'll open the door to millions of people seeing the potential of breathing because breathing has got a bad rap over the years. And the reason that the breathing cure is such a meaty buck is because I wanted to try and show Sienna that there's, there's a decent foundation with it. You know, if you look at the application of breathing exercises, whether you want to upregulate or downregulate, and ultimately this is about being able to change states, you know, breathing must go beyond what normally people talk about. The common instruction, go off and take a few deep breaths for yourself, fill your lungs full of air. You know, what is that founded upon? It's an idea that's out there and it's not a very helpful idea. And 20 years ago, it's been 20 something years ago when I was sitting down and I distinctly remember breathing less air. I actually don't remember where it was at the time, where I was, but I remember breathing less air and I could improve the temperature of my fingers. I always had cold hands and cold feet. And sometimes that's all it took. You know, that's what drove the message home to me that I was able to change my physiology, not by breathing more air, but by actually breathing less air because breathing is more, it's multidimensional. You know, we have the biochemical component, which is focused on carbon dioxide and carbon dioxide tolerance. We have the biomechanical component, which is focused on good recruitment or optimal recruitment of the diaphragm. And then the psychophysiological component, changing our physiology, changing and influence the autonomic nervous system. And researchers look at breathing from three dimensions. And therefore, it's very important. And when we are working with breathing, we also work with, from, with breathing from three dimensions. So, yeah, I think it's got great potential. So you mentioned about the nervous system downregulation. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Because I think, you know, from my research and working with people, that seems to be one of the roots of health issues and of breathing dysfunction. Yeah, and it, it would seem to be, you know, if you look at the research, people with chronic health conditions, that they're very much in that increased stress response, increased sympathetic drive. And the one thing about changing our breathing patterns is that we can influence the autonomic nervous system, that we can activate the body's relaxation response. And there's a number of ways to do it. Number one would be breathing in and out through the nose during sleep, because that in turn then is going to assist with recovery and deeper sleep, but it also helps to reduce the risk of sleep disorder breathing. You know, how many people are tracking their heart rate variability all day long? They're, they're using and measuring in every device under the sun, and then they're sleeping with their mouth open and stopping breathing during sleep. That's going to hold them back. So I actually think where, where does it start? It should start with deep sleep, breathing in and out through the nose. And overstimulation in today's day and age is a big, big issue. You know, even emails. And I think of my own work, you know, the whole aspect of emails was that emails were supposed to be, you know, we were going to be a more modern uh, individuals, a race of individuals, more modern. And it was anticipated at the time that we wouldn't have to work so hard. But the problem with emails is it's so easy for somebody to send you an email. So now you don't get 10 emails, you get flooded with emails. And you can literally sit in, in front of your computer all day long and just answer emails and you don't even get to do your own work. So yeah. we have overstimulation and overload of information. 
And it's gone to the point now that I'd love to switch off my emails, to be honest with you. <laughs> so, and I can see myself doing it because that's normally when I respond. Sometimes if I feel that something is going on too much, I say to hell with it. I'm going to switch it off. That's it. Never going to answer an email for the rest of my life. And it's it's close. So I'm not quite there yet. But but I can understand how people are overstimulated because there's so much of this going on. So we naturally then were ramped up. And how do we then bring the body into that regulation again? So I think the light breathing from Buteyko is, a, is an amazing exercise, often underappreciated, you know, that we're deliberately taking really soft and gentle breath coming into the nose and very relaxed and a slow and a gentle exhalation under breathing to the point of that air hunger. And air hunger is signifying the carbon dioxide is increased in the blood which in turn is helping to stimulate the vagus nerve. When the vagus nerve is stimulated, the heart rate is slowed down. And when the heart rate is slowed down, the brain is interpreting that the body is safe. So breathing light is one means to help balance the autonomic nervous system. And breathing slow, breathing slow to between 4.5 and 6.5 breaths per minute. But I would emphasize that it's not just about breathing slow because sometimes people are breathing slow and they're taking this full big breath or they're using their mouth. And what's happening then is that they're focusing on one dimension of breathing, but they're sacrificing the other dimensions. Whenever we focus on one dimension of breathing, it's very important that we give cognizance to the other dimensions. So even to think of breathing nose, breathing light, breathing slow, breathing low. And they are three individual dimensions, but even though each is unique, there's also some overlap. And each one of them, we can help to stimulate the vagus nerve. But I also think, like I just gave a, a talk there about 20 minutes ago, I finished up to a corporate environment of about 100 people. The corporate world, people are suffering from burnout, never seen before. It's now, you know, so many people are leaving the great resignation, all of these buzzwords we're hearing all over the place. We're not gave the, the tools to deal with stress. We're not gave the tools to deal with difficult situations. You know, people go and they spend four years at universities learning business degrees and they come out of it. And the first challenge that hits them, they, they have no control over their physiology. And that's one thing about breathing. And I will just say as well that we need deep sleep because I remember when I was in school and I was so frustrated with the educational system. I was falling asleep there. It wasn't for me. You know, it's now I got my grades, but it took a lot of work. It, and it could have been a lot easier. So in terms of the overall picture here would be, regardless of the walk of life that you're in, isn't it excellent to be able to have some control over your physiology? That if a difficult situation presents itself, you can automatically bring your attention inwards. And even if we're just focusing on the exhalation, of course, you know, that you will be working with your students, that with the inhalation, we know that the vagus nerve has stepped back, that the foot has taken off the pedal. We know the exhalation is more under the body's relaxation response. So it doesn't really matter the speed of the inhalation. It could be fast, it could be slow. More importantly, it's in and out through the nose. But we're taking a, a soft breath in through the nose, and we're having that really slow and relaxed and a prolonged exhalation. And even 90 seconds of that, you're telling the brain that everything is okay. And the brain will send a signal of calm accordingly. Now, how many people have a difficult situation 
And the next thing is they're going into this faster breathing pattern and upper chest breathing. And what's that telling the brain? The body now is telling the brain that there's a difficult situation, that the body is under threat, and the brain is here to protect the body. All the brain wants to do is to get you to help out of the situation as quick as you can. It's not a time for planning. It's not a time for decision-making. Or if you go into that fight or flight response and you make a decision, you're more likely to make the wrong one because it's made out of a rash thinking. And I remember I was having a podcast with Roger Ruge, Ruge. He's a police, former police officer, but he works a lot with first responders. And he was giving the example, you can imagine being a police officer and he, he gives the example of driving at 100 miles per hour to a situation. Now, he said that you're already ramped up. Your heartbeat is ramped up. Your breathing is ramped up. You haven't even got to the situation. And you're already put into that overstimulation stress response. Now, that's a recipe for making a mistake because we need to have balance in the autonomic nervous system. So no matter what we do, you know, it's really, really important that at least by changing our breathing patterns, we can help to influence our state. And I would start off, nose breathing is imperative, both during rest and sleep and exercise, understanding about breathing light so that you can improve your blood circulation and oxygen delivery, understanding about breathing nose and low for the benefit of good recruitment of the diaphragm, for massaging the internal organs, for providing stabilization for the spine, for the connection between the diaphragm and, then, and the emotions. Slow breathing to between 4.5 and 6.5 breaths per minute. Not that we need to be breathing like that all day long, but that we're bringing our attention inwards and onto the breath. And we're using it to change the physiology of the, the body so that the benefits carry on after the breathing exercise and to make breath part of us, you know, like I've seen it, people even, for example, doing meditation and they would be absolutely looking as the perfect scenery of, of serenity and their beautiful posture and their eyes are closed and they've got robes and they've got beads and everything, all the paraphernalia. And they do their meditation for a half an hour and the next thing is they get up and they get into everyday life and boom, the whole thing is a, is a mess because they haven't brought what they're practicing in their meditation into their everyday life. We need to make our practice of breathing something that we connect with, with the breath, regardless of what we are doing. If you're walking down the street, if you're down regulating, you know, lasting at night, if you're doing your physical exercise, if you've got five minutes here or five minutes there. And for me, connecting with the breath numerous, because I don't necessarily do formal practice now. Okay, I got out for a walk an hour, two hours ago, three hours ago, and I walked for an hour at a good brisk pace. And I did my breath practice there. And I also used it as a means of bringing my attention into the present moment because we are so overwhelmed with workload that there's often a pressure on people to do an hour of physical exercise every day, an hour of breath work every day, and an hour of meditation every day. Nobody's going to do it. At least if we can get out for physical exercise, bring your breath work practice into your physical exercise. And also when you're focusing on your breathing, use your physical exercise as a means of bringing your attention to the present moment. And ultimately, this is not necessarily about a formal practice. 
because we have got a few options in life. And as long as we're stuck in our head, we're going to miss out on so much that's going on around us anyway and feeling highly stressed. And we know that chronic stress is a recipe for inflammation. You know, the human being, we are not able to deal with chronic stress. We've never had to do it with it throughout our evolution. Chronic stress, by switching on that stress response, there's increased pro-inflammatory cytokines. And the body eventually, depending on the individual, you know, it, it will catch up on that person. And that's the one thing about the breath, that we can help with sleep for recovery. We can help with stimulating the vagus nerve. And stimulating the vagus nerve has been shown to block pro-inflammatory cytokines, to switch off the chemical messengers that are triggering inflammation. I think it's a wonderful tool. And what's more important is the understanding of it. And I would bring it back to yoga and Pilates. Can you imagine the day that every instructor of yoga and the millions of people who are coming into a yoga studio, that the instructor is versed in so many the dimensions of breathing and can tailor the breathing techniques to their, their students. It would be great. Absolutely. You touched on so many important points, Patrick. Um, one I'd like to go back to, and um, because I think this is a huge issue, and then it points also to the dichotomy between growing awareness and actually doing your practice throughout your day. So the difference between you know regular, uh, you know, breathing coming into regular awareness and having a formal practice, but. Let's go back to the email situation because I find this myself. And I actually, every time I open my email now, I use it as a chance to start my breathing practice. <laughs> but that took a long time to even get that started. So when you're sitting at your email, maybe not your favorite topic, but <laughs> let's go back there for a moment because I think it's super relevant for, for most people. When you're sitting at your email, what do you do? What do you do to, to help yourself um, get over that? overwhelm and that sympathetic nervous system that happens even when you just open your inbox just the moment you see those emails that chemical response is already happening so how can we get um, burst enough and quick enough to catch that response before it floods our nervous system with all these stress chemicals i think with breathing it's it's something that becomes very intuitive or it's something that becomes very natural that you have some connection with the breath and you're not necessarily waiting for a situation to present itself, such as opening up your emails. That if you're in tune with your breathing, you'll, you're probably more likely to sense when your body is feeling that little bit of stress. And even if you're just, as soon as you're feeling ramped up a little bit, you're bringing the attention onto the exhalation and you're slowing down the exhalation. It's not that emails make me feel stressed. It's just that I feel that emails are consuming so much of my time. And now that I'm 48 years of age, I realize that, yes, I've spent at least half of my life and more on this planet. And I don't want to spend the last couple of decades just one quarter of my day answering emails or even so like, and sometimes I've went through at the end of the day and just counted as how many emails did I answer today? 120 emails. And I said, this is all I've done today, answering emails all day long. And it, it's an issue. And I think it's it's an issue that's going to present itself. It's going to come to a head, Sienna, because we don't do projects and tasks 
when we're overwhelmed with emails. So I got up early this morning. It's whatever, 6.30 or thereabouts. I started work at that time and a couple of hours answering emails. I got them out of the way and I won't answer. I won't look at emails now for until tomorrow. So that's my way of dealing with it. And yeah, there's some emails I missed. That's the way it was. And I often missed them. I missed yours, for example, with even this podcast. And But you know what? It's, not, it's never the end of the world because even when you miss an email, and I think people understand it, like even though people kind of want you, everything has to be answered instantaneously. And, you know, everybody's wanting, wanting instant gratification. At the back of it, we all realize that we're all trying to be in this together. And I would say to people is don't overwhelm other people with emails, you know, because you're taking their time. And the one thing that we just have a limited amount of in this planet is it's time. That is the issue. And Absolutely. we want to be using it sparingly. So the connecting with the breath, for me, I don't even give it conscious thought. I just, even as I speak, I'll have some attention inwards. And it's very, it makes life a bit softer. It makes life to be in a, a nicer place. Now, do I sometimes get ramped up? Of course I do. Everybody does. But you recover quicker. That's the main thing. You know, that you're feeling ramped up. And it's great to have a couple of strategies, even to get out into nature and go for a hard and fast walk. Great way to do it, you know, away from your environment. And the one thing that is so more important than anything else is don't let work or any situation take over your mind. You know, when I think of the Dalai Lama and what he said about China taking Tibet, he said, yes, he said, China took the best, but he says, I will not let them take my mind. We should not let anything take our mind. And why would we give something the privilege of taking our mind? Now, the social media platforms, and I don't really want to go down that rabbit hole, but you can imagine these tech joints with psychologists and all of learned behavioral analysis at the helm, designed primarily to be able to take attention all day long. And for individuals looking into their phone 50 times per day, I think it's it's really, you know, coming back to time. And the one thing about, again, people often feel that they don't have the time to focus on their breathing, but they have no problem spending an hour on Instagram or an hour on Facebook. And really, what are you getting out of it? But the same old nonsense. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of bizarre how everything is going. And it's going to, I think it's going to force change, you know. I can start to see it happening. And I can see the younger kids, they have a different mindset than our us as middle-aged people. And of course, we're also going to give, we're always going to give out about the younger generations. Every generation gives out about the younger generation. But the younger generation are realizing that life is not all about work. Life is not all about working just to live, that there's more outside of life than just working. And even though emails, et cetera, has kind of, it has a still stranglehold over us. I can, I can also see that change. So I'm curious, you know, you talk about the difference between formal breathing practice, like sitting down and doing a formal breath practice versus yes. having, you know, some awareness throughout your day. And I have to say that, you know, I've been practicing for 20 and teaching for 20 years, and I really didn't have a formal sit down breathing practice for the first maybe 10, 15 years. But once I started to actually have a formal breath practice, even if it was just 10 minutes a day, 
that yes. gave me the motivation because I could feel the results and the results were so profound that it gave me motivation to practice. And then I was more motivated to watch my breath throughout my day because I said, wow, this works. So I think for me, without a some kind of formal practice in the beginning to really kickstart um, yes. that awareness, I don't know if it would have happened. And now at this point, I'm at the point where many times an hour, I'm checking my breath and it's automatic. And I would love sure. for people to find a way for that to happen. And many people ask me that they're like hours go by and I haven't checked my breath. And I probably was holding my breath dozens of times throughout that time. And if I could have just had the awareness. So I think that you point to this thing about distraction and people not being able to stop with their um, social media. And it just so much of it for me comes back to how can we teach people to have awareness? And so I link that back to my formal practice as really the thing that helped kick me into a state of, of such severe motivation because I'm like, I need to find that piece right now, that piece that I had on the cushion where I was doing my formal breath practice. And that time yes. when I just, what everything else just went away, that was so incredibly impactful to me that I now have a reference to go back to. So how can people make that bridge without a formal practice? Is there a way? And if not, what do you think the minimum formal practice would be to get enough traction so that people will have some awareness throughout their day? Because I think that is just critical or it's just not going to happen. We're just going to get carried away. I think this is an individual thing. Um, I kind of did it the opposite to you. I started off with formal practice. And from 1998 up until about in 2005, I would have been doing formal practice and I was doing Vipassana courses. And then I decided just to bring it into my everyday life. I think it served me well for the last 17 years or so. It depends really on the individual. Maybe another way to, to look at it is this, is that if the individual is bringing their attention inwards, and if you feel that if you're just doing informal practice, but if you feel that you're feeling too stressed, then it's definitely a time to set aside and do your, your formal practice. So if the informal practice isn't good enough, it's very important to do formal practice. Now, why do I put an emphasis on informal practice? In 2006 or five, it could have been, we rang up 600 people. So we called 600 of our, of our students at that time. And we asked them, you've been attending our breathing training, yes. Uh, how much are you doing the exercise every day? And the fallout was quite significant. And in 2010, then I was, I had about 3000 people coming in with anxiety and panic disorder. And I asked them the same question. How many of you have meditated before? About 5% of them, which is surprising given that it was a population of people with anxiety and panic disorder. And I said, how many of you still meditate? And it, it dropped off again. And then at CN, I was just thinking, how can we change the habit? So it's not that I just want to focus all together on the informal practice. I think formal practice is absolutely wonderful for somebody who can continue to do it. Absolutely. Why not? Most beautiful thing in the world. Bring your attention in words. But what about the person who doesn't feel comfortable with the formal practice? 
and then they abandon it altogether. And for them to start thinking about the informal practice, that if you're sitting in the car for two minutes, bring your attention onto your breathing. If you're watching TV, if you're out in nature, if you're going for your walk, you can be on a treadmill and you can literally be having your attention on your breathing all that time. So I think it's going to depend on the person. And it does really come back to, you know, we all know it ourselves when we're feeling a bit ramped up, you know, if we're in tune. And probably I wouldn't have been aware of it back 25 years ago because I was so stuck in my head and my physiology was mouth breathing and faster breathing and upper chest breathing. So I would have been ramped up all the time. And I suppose when you're ramped up all the time, you don't necessarily know that you're ramped up because that's just the way you are. But when you have had a taste of relaxation and down regulation and bringing your attention inwards and balancing in terms of the physiology, you've got something to compare to. And I think that comparison is very important that when a difficult situation presents itself and you're feeling ramped up, you know that you're ramped up because you also know what it's like to experience relaxation. So, yeah, I don't know. Is there a real answer there? I don't know. I think it's going to depend on the person. Yeah. Great. Thank you for that. I think a lot of people will benefit from knowing that they, they have a choice, you know, they don't have to do a formal practice, um, but that they can also just go out in nature and look at the sky and use that as a cue for breathing. So you're not to necessarily go out into nature and start analyzing everything because <laughs> exactly. there's a time for a, there's a time for analytical thought and there's a time for just being there. And that took me a while to get my, you know, my head around and it, it, you don't get your head around it by thinking it through. It's only the experience of it. You know, I remember going down to the sea. I'm six, six miles from the Atlantic here. And I remember going down to the sea and practicing looking out into the sea. But I had none of my attention on the sea itself because my attention was stuck in my head analyzing what's going on. And I was still lost in thought. And it took me a bit of it took me a bit of time to realize that when you first focus on your breathing, you might be just thinking about your breath. But eventually the thinking mind is put aside. And it's often that we're directing our attention to a different part of the brain. So as opposed to having your attention to the front of the brain, you're bringing your attention to the, the center a lot. What I tend to do is naturally have my attention to the back of the brain. And by holding my attention there, it's bringing me into that present moment awareness. And I think the breath is a great place to, to bring your attention into the present moment. So coming back to this to the forest, yes, go into the forest, but don't start saying to yourself, oh, there's an oak tree and there's an ash tree. And God, look at how old must, must that tree be? Because this is just analytical thought. And I'm using the example now, you can go to a restaurant and somebody presents a beautiful meal in front of you, most beautiful meal possible. And if you're stuck in your head, you're not going to see the meal. You're not going to smell the meal. You're not going to taste the meal. And this is just a meal. You know, what are we missing out on when we're stuck in our head? And this is why I would motivate people because sometimes people think, well, I don't have time for this and I don't have time for that. And breathing has had too many woo-woo connotations. But how about performance? Because your ability to concentrate and hold your attention is based on 
your capacity to direct attention of the mind. But if your mind is all over the place, your performance is going to suffer. But of course, if your mind is all over the place, you're going to be less happy. Yes. I love that you mentioned about bringing the awareness from the front brain into the back brain, because the front brain is where most of that sort of busy cognitive thought is happening. And the back brain is actually where the respiratory center is, right? The brainstem. Even just leaning back, because our head is always so far forward and it's compromising our airway and such, that just gives me such a wonderful visual of not only focusing on the back brain, but also bringing the head back into position that is going to be more conducive to opening the airway and also linking it to body awareness as far as yoga goes, because yoga is such a, that's such an important aspect of yoga is to focus on somatically what's happening in your body. Would you, besides focusing on the back of your head, would you recommend any other type of body focusing or body scanning type of techniques and link them to the breath um, just to help the mind to focus on something? Otherwise, yeah, you could be mechanically doing your breath practice, but it's not doing anything because you're stuck in your head. Yes. Yeah, I think it's really good to be able to bring your attention out of the mind and into the body. Um, and a lot of the work that we do with athletes, we have them do their training with every cell of their body, lift their weights. And as they're lifting their weights and they're feeling the, 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 the tension is to bring their attention to that muscle. If they go for a walk, walk with every cell of the body. If they're going for a jog, jog with every cell of the body. Then we use it as a means to help access flow states, that state of alertness and relaxation at the same time. But I think it's going to have parallels in yoga because in yoga, you're directing your attention inwards onto the movement, onto your breathing. And as long as you have your attention out of the mind and in your body or on your breath, your mind has quietened, that there's a stillness after coming to the mind. But if you go for a walk, Krishnamurti is a very well-known spiritual teacher. And he made a name of his, he made his goal of going for a walk. And I think it was for an hour or 90 minutes per day. But his whole objective was to go for the 90 minute walk, but not to think during the walk. In other words, to walk with every cell of the body. And Seldom do we really bring our attention into the body, but it, it, I think it goes hand in hand with the breath. And I would also go <clears throat> as far as saying is that for me, bringing attention out of the mind is the easiest place for me anyway, was to start with the breath first and then to bring the attention into the body. And even, <clears throat> even just starting off with a small part of the body, the hand, closing the eyes and bringing your attention in there. And just feeling the inner bodily sensations, not thinking about it. Because at the start, of course, you're going to be thinking about it. That's kind of normal, you know, but just keep on practicing it. And you might be feeling the temperature of the air against your skin. You might be feeling any inner bodily sensations. And then bring your attention as far as your elbow. And at least if you start off with one part of the body that's quite small, and then you can build up on that. So we start off with body awareness, but sorry, breath awareness body awareness, and then mind awareness. I think mind awareness is the, is the one in paying attention to what's actually going on in the head, knowing what we're thinking about, knowing what, what thoughts are consuming us, 
I would always start off with the breath first in the body and then to start paying attention to the mind. But that's just me. So maybe people have different ways of doing it, you know. You know, speaking of, of the mind, I think rumination is one of the biggest issues. We ruminate on everything. And a lot of times we don't even know we're doing it. So yes. is there a breathing technique that can hack rumination? Yes. A good breath hold. Mm. And again, a breath hold is not going to be suitable to everybody. Um it's not going to be suitable for somebody with panic disorder and anxiety, but maybe they could be doing small breath holds. So you could start off with breathing in through your nose and out through your nose and pinching your nose and holding the breath while walking for 10 to 15 paces and then letting go. Because there's something strange that as we do a breath hold, the mind stops thinking. And I think it is because the brain is engaging with the feeling of air hunger. But I'd always say to people, start off very, very gentle because that that air hunger response, that feeling of suffocation, that's often a symptom that feeds into anxiety and panic disorder. Now, with, for example, the breathing exercises, we use it as a means of helping that individual to desensitize the reaction towards suffocation. And during the breath hold, the mind does stop thinking. Cold water immersion is going to do it as well. You know, if you get into a bath of pretty cold water, well, your mind is going to stop thinking because you've got two choices. Either you jump out of it as quick as you can or you surrender to the cold. And the more you can surrender and you're slowing down your breathing, even doing long meditations, Vipassana, you, your ache and pains all over the body, you feel that your legs are gone from under you and you have to surrender to the pain. So I think there's a number of different ways to do it. And maybe people, that's why people go for a jog, you know, they go for a jog because of to help to bring some stillness to the mind. Um, so breathing techniques, would hyperventilation do it? Probably. It has its own problems, though. And we've seen problems with hyperventilation. And the only reason I say it because of the popularity of the Wim Hof method. You know, we've seen people hyperventilating and it has put them into such a stress response, even though many people get benefits from it. And that's just the power of the breath. So I think the, the, a good place to start would be start off gentle. You know, if you, if you wanted to go down the route of reduced breathing, start off gentle. See how your body responds to the air hunger. Doing breath holds, start off gentle. Don't do breath holds or hyperventilation, especially if you're pregnant or if you suffer from anxiety, because it could just exaggerate the response. Thank you. I think... That's a really important point that there are some contraindications to yes. certain breathing techniques and they really need to be considered not only on what your health issues that you have, but what's presenting for you in, a, in the moment, because, you know, we may have anxiety, but we're not feeling it in the moment. And that might be a good time to actually practice so that we get comfortable yes. with that air hunger. Now I want to bring your, um, bring back to what you said about the fast breathing, because this really links into issue of yoga and yogic breathing techniques. And one of which I'm sure you're well aware of, it's called Kapalabhati and also Bhastrika. And Kapalabhati, I would explain as a quick exhale, focusing more on that fast exhalation, then the inhale just rushes in on its own. Whereas Bhastrika is more of like a bellows where you're focusing 
intensely on the inhale and the exhale and having some kind of restraint or constriction or force that's forcing the air very quickly on both the inhale and the exhale. So that's the difference really between, I see as the difference between the two, but nonetheless, both of them um, have to do with fast breathing and taking in large amounts of air in a quick amount of time, which is hyperventilation. So what would you say about that kind of breathing? Does it have a place? Is there a safe way that people can do it? I think it would be important to measure people's control pause. And I'm sure that experienced yoga instructors in times gone by use breath hold time to differentiate beginner students from more experienced students. And to introduce certain breathing techniques when the student was able for them. Hyperventilation techniques, of course, are fine, but it depends on how the individual is going to respond to the hyperventilation. If you already have somebody with um, dysfunctional breathing patterns, with a control pause that's less than 15 seconds, um, people say, for example, recovering from respiratory issues or anxiety, and you put them into a faster breathing pattern. And the other thing about this CN is, even though the individual is breathing fast, what's the tidal volume? Because you may have one instructor which is focusing solely on the respiratory rate and not necessarily taking into consideration the tidal volume. You could breathe fast and hard, but you don't necessarily have to hyperventilate. And the faster breathing, of course, is going to add an extra load onto the diaphragm. And the fast exhalation is a stressor. So I can see the role of these breathing techniques. You know, they're stressing the body and mind to develop resilience. I've got three dogs, and obviously a delivery person is after coming, but it always happens at the right time. So stressing the body and mind to cause the body to make those those adaptations but also then to think of recovery so whenever you do say um, bastrika after bastrika why not then do recovery and also to emphasize to the students what the exercise are actually doing you know that you're saying to your student this is an exercise now which we're going to stress the autonomic nervous system a little bit and then we're going to give bring in recovery. We're going to do reduced volume breathing to help balance everything, to normalize the blood gases. And, you know, then we're, we're giving that, that greater understanding that the person then has the tools. Well, if they want to upregulate, they can upregulate. But if they want to downregulate, they can downregulate. You know, at the moment, there's an idea out there about hyperventilation. The more air you breathe and the harder and faster you breathe, the more oxygen that's warming throughout the body. Now, could that be helpful? Because if you have an individual then who was deliberately going for a walk along the seaside and they are deliberately hyperventilating with the intention to bring more air into their body. Yes, more oxygen, of course, enters the lungs. But it doesn't necessarily increase the blood oxygen saturation. And that problem with the hyperventilation is that the loss of carbon dioxide is going to cause the blood vessels to constrict and less oxygen to be delivered throughout the organs. So I think there's a time for stressing the body and mind, but there's also a time for recovery. Now, would I teach stress or breathing exercise to everybody? No. Um, and we've seen some reports, you know, I'll give you this example. One of our instructors is a psychologist based in Italy. And a client presents himself because of facial tics, facial spasms. 
five years ago, this client who was in his early 20s came across hyperventilation techniques online. And he did it by himself, hyperventilating, one session. And all it took was one session that he had facial spasms following that. And he's had facial spasms for the last five years. Now, we've had other cases of people getting shingles. And not our students, but people are telling, you know, people send us an email, so we kind of get that feedback. Um, and here's a point that a stressor breathing exercise, there can be a time where a good stress turns into a bad stress. And, you know, that then is a problem because I think we really do need, and I've made mistakes with the breath. I've made plenty of mistakes. We need the instructors who are teaching these exercises to be fully cognizant of what's going on here and to tailor breathing exercise according to the individual. Absolutely. I think it's, you make a very good point about the difference between teaching an individual and the difference between teaching a group. And I always found it quite challenging to adapt breathing techniques um, in a yoga class that's full of 30, 40, or even more people. Um, you know, I find I make a lot of disclaimers and really rely on people to make good choices for themselves, but uh, they don't always because of the competitive nature of, of the human mind, right? So what do you think really is the best thing that you mentioned, you know, on your website that one of your long-term goals is to educate professionals, including yoga teachers, physiotherapists, speech and language therapists, dentists about the Buteco breathing method to better help their clients. What would you say to people in those professions and also people who are going to yoga classes about the Buteco method that could be most useful to them, most universal? I think it's to understand that breathing is multi-dimensional. It's more complex than just focusing on the biomechanics. And also it's not necessarily how you're breathing in the studio, but it's how you're breathing outside of the studio. You know, can you bring in functional breathing into your rest, into your sleep, into your physical exercise? I really feel that the professions could improve the long-term outcomes of their patients. Um, to give you an example, sleep doctors. It's been known for decades that open mouth breathing during sleep leads to a lighter sleep and increases the risk of sleep disorder breathing. The top sleep doctor in the world, who is considered Dr. Christian Gimelow, spoke about this. And I remember in Bordeaux in 2016, six years ago, and he stood up in a room of about 200 medical doctors. I was not, I was there, but I'm not a sleep doctor. And he said to the doctors, he said, the elephant in the room here is mouth breathing during sleep. We really have to be paying attention to it. Now, here is something that sleep doctors are actively working with their patients, but how many sleep doctors are actively encouraging their students and patients to breathe in and out through their nose. It's not happening. So I would love sleep medicine getting more um, an awareness of the different dimensions of breathing. Think about the asthma population. You know, I came into this because of chronic asthma for 25 to 26 years, and it made a dramatic recovery, dramatic change to my life. And I remember approaching then the, the bodies and the organizations who work in asthma. And I said, please investigate this. They weren't interested. They didn't want to know about it. And that was in part which drove me then to write the books. 
because I felt that the professions didn't want to know about it. And many of the professions didn't want to know about it. And I could also understand that if you have an instructor who's trained in a particular modality, so say, for example, you have a yoga instructor and that yoga instructor was trained and their guru has gave them a precise training. That yoga instructor is feeling very indebted to their guru and the yoga instructor would feel a sense of betrayal if the yoga instructor was to start deviate outside of the training of their guru. But that's what's holding this back, you know, because we have to realize that there is so much more to breathing. And as you said, you can still give this to 30 or 40 students inside a yoga class if you start off very gently and then you just gently gear up and you're saying to the students, only go as far as you feel comfortable and listen to your body. So say, for example, you're bringing students into different asanas and you're having them focus on their body, but also focusing on the breath. And you want them to have really light breathing through the movement. And you could time the movement and time their light breathing that you do not hear any students breathing in the class. But you can say to some students, listen, if the air hunger gets a little bit too much for you, make your breathing a little bit harder. So in other words, tailoring it to the needs of the, the, the student, but also bringing then yoga, bringing breathing off the mat. And the dental profession, there's an article that you'll find online published back 1907 or 1908. And it's published in the journal that was around at the time called Dental Cosmos. And it spoke of young children in class. These kids were mouth breeders. They have overcrowding of teeth. They have their jaws that are set back. The children are inattentive in school. They have dull and expressionless faces. Like it's terrible stuff, you know, that was written about kids 111 years ago or 12 years ago. Nothing has happened. The dental profession has debated it. There's been, you know, article after article. And the dental profession don't even know where to start. Now, it doesn't take 500 double-blinded randomized control trials to realize that the human nose is there for a purpose, but it has been overlooked. It's been overlooked in respiration. It's been overlooked in sleep medicine. It's been overlooked in dentistry. And it's also been overlooked in mental health. 75% of the anxiety and and panic disorder population have to, having dysfunctional breathing. They are breathing a little bit faster, a little bit harder, upper chest breathing, open mouth breathing, irregular breathing patterns. They will have a low control pause. How many psychotherapists and psychologists and counselors working in the field of mental health are actually investigating their students from three dimensions of breathing? So the potential here, CN is enormous. But we also have to realize that the universities are very slow with this. And it is going to take another 20 years. But I'll also say this, I really see a big shift. In 2002, there were very few people who were actively teaching breathing full time. Very few people. I was teaching breathing, only breathing. And breathing aside with no other discipline, only focusing on breath work. And in the last three years, I've really seen an enormous shift. You know, COVID has brought people's attention to the Brett. I think James Nestor's book, Brett, has also, he's done a wonderful, you know, work there. 
in highlighting the importance of nasal breathing, information that has been out there, that we all knew was out there, that we've all been speaking about. But James did a wonderful job in packaging that information and getting it out to the population. And it's lifted it for us, you know, because his background coming as a research journalist, um, that he's, he's been really being tremendous there. But I would love to see yoga instructors delving more into it and, you know, psychotherapy. I really feel somebody with anxiety and somebody with panic disorder with faster and upper chest breathing, cognitive behavioral therapy is not going to change physiology. Absolutely. And the breath is something that we have all the time with us yes. and it's free and it can be easy. Um, I want to yes. say something about what you were mentioning as far as the fast breathing, where you can temper it with a breathing practice right after that to balance blood oxygen levels. And so I noticed that, yes, you can, that when people are doing Kapalabhati or fast breathing techniques and with the intention of hyperventilating, that's one practice. Um, once I learned about this blood oxygen level issue, I definitely started to train myself and others how to do the Kapalabhati, but not taking in a lot of air. And that was really mind blowing to people that they could actually regulate the tidal volume or the amount of air that they're taking in and still be able to get the benefits of literally lifting weights with your diaphragm. That's what I call mm -hmm. it when we're doing um, Kapalabhati breathing. But then also following it with feather breathing, I call it feather breathing, mm -hmm. which is basically slow, light, deep breathing. Um, is that something that you would recommend? So if we totally. did, okay, so feather breathing, could you explain how that would help balance the effects of Kapalabhati or fast breathing? Well, say for example, if you're doing very fast breathing, it's, it's naturally a stressor. And it's the speed of the exhalation which determines if you're stressing the body or mind. If you have a fast exhalation, the brain is interpreting that the body is under threat. So the, the brain reacts by going into that fight or flight response. So aside from the blood gases, the very fact that you've stressed the body and mind by doing fast breathing, that it's very important to bring in recovery. And to think about recovery, you're doing the opposite to the stress response. Whenever we as individuals get into a, a tricky situation, our breathing gets faster and harder and upper chest breathing, we sigh more. So what we want to do is to breathe nose, breathe light, breathe slow, breathe low. And it's almost then that we're shaking the autonomic nervous system. You're stressing it first with the faster breathing, and then you're bringing it into total relaxation. And then you could do another stress, another cycle of stress and total relaxation. But I think the biggest thing is that you're telling people that here you were able to change your states and you're giving people the control that by understanding their breathing, they can change states. You know, I worked, I walked into exams when I was in my early 20s, exams that I was highly strong going into. Okay, I studied hard. And I remember going for a walk. I read this book about the importance of taking deep breaths back in, but this is going back into the mid-1990s. I went for a walk for three or four minutes before going into the exam hall. And I took these full big breaths. And I don't know if it was through my nose or mouth because oftentimes that, that instruction is not even provided. 
But I felt that by taking these full big breaths, it's going to calm me down. I'll go into the exam hall and I'll be more composed. I was all over the place. I was lightheaded. And I remember sitting there and I couldn't get my thoughts together. It took me a while, a good while for everything to come back to normal. Now, there's an example that I didn't understand about the physiology. And I followed the advice from a book, but the advice was not necessarily correct. And if we look at, you know, what is, do you, do we really think that the original yoga masters, that they made a big mistake with this one, that they forgot about the biochemistry, that they forgot about the subtlety of the breath, that they didn't take into consideration air hunger. I will guarantee you that the original yoga masters fully understood. They may not have had the science, but I guarantee you that they fully understood that breathing light has got benefits, that it wasn't just about breathing fast. It wasn't just about breathing low. It was also about breathing light because the original yoga masters were scientists, but whatever happened when the information was passed down through the generations. And I think there's another thing about breathing. Like I would divide breathing into two camps. You've got your introvert camp, which is, the subtlety of the breath, breathing light, breathing nose, and breathing slow, and going into meditation. That's your introvert camp. And then you've got your extrovert camp, hyperventilation, breath holding, you know, the, the stuff that you can see readily. Well, where's the Western audience going towards? Bump, straight over to the extroverted camp. And the introverted camp isn't getting the attention. Well, if going back to basics, where would my preference be? Absolutely the introverted camp. The extroverted camp is whenever you want to upregulate, but your basic foundation is the introverted camp. And the other thing that I'd say in terms of personality traits, because something is bigger and bolder doesn't necessarily make it better. You know, and it's really important that uh, the, the subtlety of the breath, and that's the wonderful thing about it, that you can be doing it and nobody even knows that you're doing it. Yes. And I think that's something that yoga brings very specifically to the table is becoming more aware of your body, um, being in a state of awareness and connection to the body that you wouldn't otherwise get if you were in your head, basically, you know, but yoga's main premise is to be in the body, to feel the body so that you can help um, not only notice, but then appreciate when you are able to regulate your system. That appreciation, when you feel those benefits, it's going to keep people coming back for more. So, you know, but people might miss those. And I love that throughout this talk, you have emphasized a really important point, which is bringing it off the mat off the cushion, off out of your breathing practice into the world. And I think that can't be emphasized enough that even just any point in time, you sit and do, I call it the one minute breathing break. Um, but that might even be too long for some people. You know, it might just be a three breath break um, where they take three breaths mindfully, slowing their breath down, almost like you're restarting an engine. You're starting all over again. And hopefully that's kickstarting that kind of slow, deep breathing. 
I think people get confused when you say deep breathing with a deep breath. That's a very common misconception when I teach people. They say, how can you take a a deep breath but not take in a lot of air? I said, it's easy. You just use your diaphragm. (laughs) Can you speak to that? Your cat will teach you. Um, Animals instinctively, in the most part, will breathe in in and out through the nose. The dog, of course, in a warm day will revert to mouth breathing to regulate body temperature. When we talk about the word deep, deep basically means far from the top. So at the bottom of the the chest cavity at the thorax, we have our main breathing muscle called it it the diaphragm. And the brain is monitoring primarily carbon dioxide and blood pH. When carbon dioxide increases, blood pH drops. And it's the drop to blood pH that triggers the brain to send a message to breathe. So the brain sends a message via the phrenic nerve to the diaphragm and the diaphragm during rest will move down by about two to three centimeters and the intercostal muscles at the side pull out. So when we're breathing nose, we have a greater recruitment of the diaphragm breathing muscle than with mouth because mouth breathing is more upper chest. If you were to look at an animal breed, say a cat that's just lying there, And the cat will have most part the mouth closed. I've never seen a mouth breathing cat, but I've been told they're out there. But so I'm not sure yet. But the cat will be breathing in and out through the nose. And you'll see that the cat is breathing low. The cat isn't intentionally taking these full big breaths. You know, the cat isn't deliberately hyperventilating. And the cat is going into a nice state of relaxation and taking plenty of time out through it today and stretching. And having time of solitude, the human being is not able to do it. But aside from that, in terms of the recruitment of the diaphragm, anybody can practice it. You have your hands either side of your lower ribs and take the subtlest of a breath in through your nose. And do you feel your ribs moving outwards? And when you're breathing out, do you feel your ribs moving in? So it's not about actively pushing and pulling the tummy movement, but it's about seeing that as you're breathing in through your nose, that 80% of the movement should be driven by the diaphragm. And sometimes people then say to me, well, you want me to breathe light? We only practice breathing light at certain times throughout the day. And people say, well, what about if I want to be filling my lungs full of air? That's fine. Go for a run. Because there's a time to breathe more when your metabolism needs it. But it doesn't necessarily make sense to be filling your lungs full of air because now you're breathing more than what your metabolism wants. It's the same as overeating. You know, we all know that we could eat too much food. Of course, that's not good. We can drink too much water. That's not good. And we can breathe too much air. That's not good. Absolutely. And that's, I love that analogy between overeating and overbreathing because everybody knows what it feels like when you overeat. Not everybody knows what it feels like when they overbreathe because it's so prevalent. That is their normal state of being. It's become normal to them. So it's not something that they even realize is happening. So giving people that analogy, I think, is, is, um, is great. I'm curious if you can speak to one more thing about, gosh, it's been about seven months ago. I broke my left ankle and I broke mm. my right foot. And I went to the ER and the doctor said, I thought I just had severe sprains. I couldn't walk on them, but um, the doctor comes in, not with very good bedside manner and says, I've got bad news. You're not leaving here 
walking or leaving in a wheelchair. And that moment is when I felt all the blood drain from my body. I'm sitting in a wheelchair at the moment and I felt like I was going to tumble out, but I caught myself. And because I've been doing your breathing techniques for quite some time, I was able to initiate a breathing technique called many small breath holds um, that I think literally prevented me from doing a nosedive and getting a concussion on top of <laughs> two broken legs. And it helped immediately. And it helped me really come back to, and that's what you mentioned earlier about stopping the breath, just stopping the breath. Um, I think if I was an anxious person or if I had a panic disorder, I don't think I probably would have been able to do that. But one, because I did have a formal breath practice where I was practicing these many small breath holds so that I had a pathway there that I could use it in a time of extreme stress and then have the awareness of I've got something to do to deal with this and I need to use it right now. Can you explain why that breathing technique works so well in that situation and maybe what other people can use that technique for, um, especially regarding pain management. And then I just want to segue also into the fact that once I got home, I made a pledge to myself, I'm not going to use any pain medication, even ibuprofen. I want to see if I can use my breathing to manage this pain. And so here I have giant swollen ankles and broken bones, and I didn't take any pain medication or ibuprofen at all. I used wow. the breathing techniques to manage that pain. Mm, the small breath hold exercise is a wonderful little exercise in terms of an anti-stress or an emergency. And we've used it a lot over the years with people with anxiety and panic disorder, people with COPD, people with severe asthma. And, you know, we've had instructors go through some of the worst life situations. We had one instructor that his 22-year-old daughter died by suicide. And what got him through it was the small breath holes. I don't think we fully understand what's going on with the small breath holes. Um, it certainly assists with recovery. And it's also likely that it's helping to extend the exhalation because you're having a normal inhalation and exhalation. But you're not just then breathing in. You're actually having a pause at the end of the exhalation, which is dissimilar to extending the exhalation to stimulate the vagus nerve. I think that's one of the biggest things that it's doing. And the other thing about the small breath holes is you don't have to be actively paying attention to your breathing because when the mind is in a dreadful state of emotional turmoil, the last thing that you probably want to do is focus on your breath. Whereas with this, you can just hold your nose. You know, you're taking a normal breath in and out. You're pinching your nose and holding five, four, three, two, one. Let go. Breathe in through your nose. Now, it's also going to increase carbon dioxide a little bit in the blood. And depending on the person's control pause, they may or may not feel air hunger. It's not designed to create a feeling of air hunger, but it might happen. Slow breathing has been shown to reduce pain perception. And if we get into a state of hyperventilation, so I can imagine many people would, would have been presented with the same news as you, and already anxiety will have kicked in. Their breathing is harder and their breathing is faster. And now the central nervous system and the brain is agitated and it's going to drive up pain. So 
by controlling our breathing, we are able to have some role in terms of reducing pain. Now, how does that work? I don't know. Is it through the baroreflex mechanism? I don't know. There are some studies that come out in the last few years. Now, I don't know what way they did the studies, but they had people exposed to heat and they measured their pain perception and their pain perception was lowered when, when individuals breathed slowly. So when slow breathing is not always possible, if the emotional turmoil is too much, breath holding on the next, after an exhalation. And yeah, there could be a number of things going on, Sienna, so I'm not sure exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Actually, that makes a lot of sense. I think to, um, to close, would you mind leading us through that breathing exercise? Sure, of course. So Great. the small breath holds is a very simple exercise and it can be practiced by anybody. So it's a very good place to start. Now you mightn't feel a whole lot out of it because it's an emergency exercise, but you might, so who knows? So you're taking a normal breath in through the nose and out through the nose and you're pinching the nose and holding for five, four, three, two, one. Let go, but breathe in through your nose. And now you're just breathing gently for about 10 to 15 seconds. And when you feel comfortable again, Take a normal breath in through your nose, out through your nose, pinch your nose and hold five, four, three, two, one. And then you let go. And then you're breathing gently for about 10 to 15 seconds. How many seconds is the inhale and the exhale? Well, in terms of we don't necessarily count it because I think it's going to be individual to the person. You know, if you've got somebody who's quite stressed, their breathing could be a little bit faster. So we don't necessarily time the inhalation or the exhalation. We time the breath hold that it should be no more than half the person's control pause at that time. And that's the beauty about doing these exercises, like working with people with long COVID, where the autonomic nervous system is really dysregulated with some individuals that they can hardly get out of bed. They're hardly able to stand up because they've got postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, the heart rate jumps up. Their breathing can be so labored that they can only hold their breath for about four seconds. That's their control pause. So we have them do breathing recovery to help to bring a balance in the autonomic nervous system. But the rule of thumb is only hold your breath during the breathing recovery exercise for half your control pause at that time. So we tend not to time the breathing so much But you know what, you could be breathing in, depending if a person has a decent enough control pause, breathing in maybe for a couple of seconds, breathing out for, normally the exhalation should be one and a half times the length of the inhalation. So if the inhalation was for two seconds, the exhalation should be for about three to four seconds. Then you're holding your breath for five seconds. I think one thing about the control pause that I found is people may miss the fact yes. that they actually had the impetus to breathe and then just yes. skipped right over it. What are the signs basically that they can look for that's showing them, you know, you're having a breathing response. You're, you're trying to take in more air and you're ignoring it basically. And you're getting a larger number than you otherwise would. So the control pause is to make, make sure that people you're sitting down for about five minutes before you measure it. You're taking a normal breath in and out through your nose. You're pinching your nose with your fingers. You're timing it in seconds until such point that the brain 
sends the first definite signal to breathe. Now, how would the body experience this? You might have an involuntary contraction of the diaphragm. And the diaphragm breathing muscle is mechanically linked with muscles in the throat. So sometimes you can actually feel it as a swallow. And so if it's a contraction of the diaphragm or a swallow, oftentimes they can coincide. Now, a person might be just swallowing anyway. So how do you know? Well, you don't that in that instance are the first definite desire to breathe. But a very important component is that when you resume breathing, you shouldn't have catch up breathing. That your breathing when you resume breathing should be fairly close to what it was before you started. And the other thing I'd say to people is don't care what you get, you know, like we so much pressures on people. And I think this is also an issue with wearing trackable devices that everybody is measuring their own data. And there's a psychological stress now to do better and sleep better. And when you're putting pressure on yourself then to do this, you're hampering the very thing that you want to improve. Yes, yes, I would agree. I think the hyper-measuring brings this hyper-vigilant, which in itself stimulates the sympathetic nervous system, which is exactly what we're trying to downregulate. So I I feel the same way with these tracking devices. We really use them sparingly. Plus, it's actually hooking us to our devices once again. And those devices have EMFs, and they've got this, you know, distraction quality that we just can't um, manage sometimes. So... There's all those reasons as well. Thank you for taking the time and talking to the Breathe Better podcast audience. I think you addressed some really important points around, you know, the adult population and the health issues they have, and also um, the yoga population. There's, you know, 300 million people practicing yoga around the world. And um, I think it's important that if they're using it for a breathing practice, a mindfulness-based practice, that they'd be doing it in a way that respects the physiology of our body you're very welcome it's a pleasure thank you sienna take care thank you all so much for tuning in remember to rate review and subscribe to this podcast if you'd like to visit patrick's website it's butecoclinic.com if you'd like to visit my website and see what i'm up to i am offering a breathing course and the next one is starting soon visit siennasmith.com thanks again and i'll see you in the next episode